Assalamualaikum, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Tonight's a little bit different than our average Asichos uh, Musar, um, but I'm going to leave that to our Rebbeim, who will be speaking to frame the evening, so I won't say much about that. But I really do want to thank uh, both our one of our senior Russia Yeshiva, Rabbi Aaron Khan, who is, uh, who is a tremendous Rebbe to myself and to so many of us online, and we really appreciate him taking out the time in this very, very busy season to uh, spend some time with us tonight. And as well, we thank Rabbi Bashafkin, one of our IBC Rebellion, very popular, um, and many of you know him. He's also a director of education at NCSY, and also very busy time for both of them, and they have graciously, graciously given up their time tonight to spend with us to help us prepare for Yom Noraim. Believe it or not, Rosh Hashanah is just a few days away. So uh, without further ado, thank you both. Um, a little just words of instructions for all the Talmudim, because this is a little bit of a give and take and a dialogue between two speakers. It's really best if you view this in speaker mode. Um, our speakers will be spotlighted, so they'll be in the center of the screen. And that way you can just see a little bit of the give and take. Um, so best view speaker mode and not in a gallery mode or whatever the other one's called. Okay, thank you. So... Rabbi Bacon, thank you so much for that uh, introduction. And I just want to frame a little bit about what we're trying to do tonight and maybe address the strangeness of having a conversation as opposed to a sheer or typical uh, Musr Shmuz so close to Rosh Hashanah. What exactly are we trying to do? There was a minhag in the Yeshiva of Slabadka that nearly... Uh, both the Mashkiach, the altar of Slabatka, and many of the Talmidim used to keep diaries. In fact, it was well known that uh, uh, the altar's diary was, they snuck in, they found his diary, and they actually copied down the very words that he had in his diary on Motzi Yom Kippur. And it's a very strange minhag that, you know, nobody now in yeshiva, as far as I know, keeps a diary. But I've always found it to be an extraordinarily moving practice. The person who snuck in and actually copied down the diary of the Altar of Slabodka was a, not as well known as he should be, was a, a phenomenal Talmud Chacham and a Balhergish, a Balshira, a poet, a Talmud Chacham of the highest variety named Rav Avram Kaplan, who wrote the Sefer Be'ikvus Hayira, that I have right over here. And he also kept a diary. He died at an extraordinarily young age, as did his father. He was named after his father. And he has a diary there about what the years, the experience was like in the years that he spent in Slabodka. And he writes in his diary, this is written in Elul of 1913. He says, Amnam, ha'im Elul Am I a seeker of Elul? Yere Shemayim Ani. Am I a Yere Shemayim? Elamai, what's the alternative? Eneni Doresh Elo, I'm not a seeker of Elo. Eneni Yere Shemayim, I'm not a Yere Shemayim. Magu Migochech Hadover, Umamatziv Hadover. How kind of absurd and saddening is this idea? Bishoshani Shoel as Hashte Hashay Los Ha'ilo. The very moment that I'm asking these two questions, Bazeacharzeh. The Afal Pikain Einenu Sosros I'm asking these questions whether I'm a Yerushimayim and I seek Elul, or am I not a seeker of Elul? But these two very questions don't contradict each other. And I think in many ways, 
the notion of somebody sharing their experiences of tshuva, their almost personal diaries, not in the context of a shir, not in the context of a classical sichas musr, is at the heart of the Yom Narayim and the tshuva experience, which really gets to the heart of who we are as people and who we are as humanity. Yesterday uh, was Chaf Hei Elo, one man the Amar says was the creation of the world. And in many ways, tshuva is the creation of the human being, of the individual, of the Jew. Rev Hutner in Pachad Yitzchak writes in, in, Yom, in Yom Kippur, and I love this quote, he writes, Kocha shel tshuva he, the power of tshuva, he harabusa hayoser gadola, achare hapela shel bria shemayev aretz. It is the greatest chiddush in the world, the capacity to do tshuva after the very creation of the world itself. And in that sense, tshuva is, in a sense, the creation of our very sense of self. So with, with that in mind, the ability to share almost as a diary of our experiences, that it is really a tremendous covet to talk with Arav Khan, our Rosh Hashiva, about his experiences. And I'd like to begin with the following question, Rabbi Khan. Do you have a specific Yomim Noroyim experience that you think was the most formative in your life? Well, before I answer that, uh, that question, I'd like to comment because I, I didn't know that you're beginning with the quotation from Ralph Kaplan. But actually, to me, that's an extremely personal quotation. You know, I find that the quality of Rosh Hashanah is exactly that this gilu bira oda idea, this question of, are you going in with brimming with confidence or are you going in with tremendous anxiety? And the truth of the matter is, that question really boils down to this, you know, who, who am I in relation to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? And I think every one of us asks that question probably all the time, but Elul, you know, forces you to ask that question. And the whole concept of Elul and the preparation of Elul is exactly that. You, you're, you're forced to ask the question, so what does Rosh Hashanah mean to you? What does it mean that you're approaching the Yemei Hadin? And, you know, this problem existed from time immemorial. There's a person needs to have a certain confidence about his capacity for tshuva to be able to do tshuva. When in, in, in Sefer Nechemia, the very famous passage, so they read the Sefer Torah and they read the passages of tshuva, and the people got hysterical. And they started to cry, but there's two kinds of crying. There's a crying of tremendous uh, feeling, the passion of tshuva, and that's good. But then there's the cry that's total breakdown, you know, where you're full of yish. And the question of what kind of a crying was it? And I think that, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, the Levian, they were quite confident that this was a cry of Yish. And this would have been terrible. They read all of the things that they did wrong. You know, they had just previously given up their intermarried you know, relationships. And there was a great deal of a sense of anxiety that maybe we're not Zeichet to obey Samikdash, maybe we're not the worthy people that we think we are. And 
he gets up there and he says to them, Don't be depressed. And we don't even know exactly what those words mean. You look at this mafarish, it means one thing, another mafarish, it means another. But apparently, or at least the Pirish that I would like to say, is that your strength is the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is always happy with you. Even when he's angry with you, even, and that's the Pesach, for Afgam Zos B'Yosem Be'eretz Ha'veyim, Lo Ma'astim Lo Ga'altum L'Chalosam, I never had contempt for you. And it is that there's a passage where HaKadosh Baruch Hu says what he commits himself to Bnei Yisrael. And he says to Bnei Yisrael, you'll be an Am Segulo, you'll be Elyon Al Kol and you'll be Shemer Torah Mitzvahs. And the question that Orachayim asks on that Pasuk, which is right after the beginning of Kisavo, after the parish of Bikurim and the Maisras, and it says, Es Hashem ha'emircha hayom liyos lo le'am segula v'lishma komitzvosot. And he asks, lishma komitzvosot is not what Hashem does for us, it's what we do for Hashem. And he, and he answers his terrors. But I'd like to say, I'd like to suggest that it means HaKadosh Boku looked around, no matter how many times we fail him, there's nobody like Klal Yisrael. There's no one that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is willing to entrust Taryak Mitzvahs except for Klal Yisrael. And they're telling them, the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is rejoicing with you, that is your strength. So no matter how bad it is, it'll be good. And that's really a great deal of the message of Rosh Hashanah and that Tarte de Sasrit. You see it in the Shoifer itself. The Bali Musa, when they blew Shoifer, they cried like babies. The Vilna Gaon says that when we blow shofar, we make HaKadosh Baruch Melech and we should be besimcha atzuma. <laughs> I don't know how you negotiate both of those achas. But the point is that it, the, there is the capacity for Klal Yisrael to see both sides. And that's what Rosh Hashanah is. As far as my experience is concerned, interestingly enough, I have found that uh, as much as children do not understand in terms of Roshem, and I think this is an important point for parents to appreciate. As much as they don't understand in terms of Roshan, there's nothing like the Roshan on a child. So I have, I had the Suchus that for whatever reason, and it's interesting, my father took us when we were little children to Davin Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur with Ravar and Kutler and Lakewood. Very interesting. And that experience left an indelible Roshem on me, not so much of Ravaran, but of the whole milieu, the whole experience. It wasn't a huge island. There weren't thousands of Talmidim at the time. And uh, it was very, the access was very easy, you know. Didn't have to register in advance for a month. You know, we just came. And uh, we found a place to stay. And my father encouraged us to appreciate that kind of a davening. At Kedei Kach did it make a Roshan. I'd rather have a certain, uh, I guess, uh, sensitivity for music. But At Kedei Kach that I remember every single nigan from that kufa. I, I remember very often, you know, Tzdokad Yelonu Al-Kol Yisrael right after Birchas Kainan. Yelonu Al-Kol Yisrael. It's still ringing in my ears. I, I, don't, I don't want to tell the Olam how many years that is, but we're talking about when somebody is you know, nine years old, you know, nine years old, that's a very long time. It's, it's, it's 65 years ago. 
Did you, can make Ar- you can make the cheshbon later, but it's 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 a very long time ago. Did Rav Aaron Cutler speak when you were going there for Yom Narayim? Would he no, speak? there was no such thing. I mean, you know, the, that's a rabbinic thing, and that's uh, something that a mashkiach probably would do. But I, 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 I'll tell you the truth. You knew he was there, and because we knew he was very great. I mean, we knew means the children, like myself and my brothers, who were even younger. But uh, I, I think it was just that that environment. That you know, it was it was a yeshiva environment, but it was intimate. It was a you know there was a brand new building, but it was you know there was plenty of room, and there was no. And uh, I, I just I just. I, sometimes you know something you don't even know why you feel something many decades later you just know that you do and the, the next moment that captures my imagination is when i was somewhat older we stayed on we, we grew up on the upper west side so we stayed on the west side and we davened with Reb Mendel Zach who was a son-in-law of the Chofetz Chaim and there too the thing that I remember the most is that all the little kids, it was a mansion, and the building still exists. I think the Yeshiva Tana of the West Side is there. But anyhow, the building still exists, but it was a mansion, and it had this spiral staircase, which had a very wide uh, banister. And all I remember is that the, the, the wild kids used to slide down from the third floor down to the first floor on that banister. The whole yontif. <laughs> that was not me. I was never one of those wild kids. I was already older. I'm talking about four-year-olds and five-year-olds. But, you know, that's what you remember. You remember things. But being in the presence of Reb Mendel Sachs was, was, was really something because, you know, it, it, it's, it, 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 he was a gentleman that you could almost use the words curled the mama back up. He hardly ever spoke. He spoke in half sentences, just like he smoked half cigarettes. He used to break a cigarette in half, smoke it till the end. His fingers were always black. From the you know from holding the cigarette, I was surprised that he didn't set himself on fire. But Lemaisa, he was a tremendous, tremendous Talmud Chacham, who had a phenomenal zikaron. And when he spoke, you know, you could tell that he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. But he almost never finished his sentence. It was almost like a ha'ara, you know, like a ha'ara of, of almost a shorthand. He spoke in shorthand. And. Uh, you know, that kind of speech, you can't become a major speaker or somebody that, you know, wows uh, thousands of people. But anyone that knew and that understood, they realized they were in the presence of, of a gong. And he happened to be the bochen of our yeshiva. He was the bochen of our yeshiva. That, that's so, really, I'm sorry, that it, it's really fascinating. When I was thinking about my own Yom Narayim experience, I also went to when I was a young child, the voice the 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 formative chazan voice that I still have in my head, you know, at the end of Yom Kippur and throughout Rosh Hashanah, Hashem Hu Elokim is actually the father of one of the Rosh Yeshiva and Yeshiva University, uh, um, Rabbi Ezra Schwartz's father, Carmi Schwartz. Yeah, sure. Uh, who's a Klal Yisrael Jew, and he uh, he davened for the Amud when I was growing up in Sharei Tefillah, um, and and hearing his voice, it would give out in the later years. And even the, the, he would have to be quiet for a couple minutes to regain his strength and his voice. And it's something that absolutely uh, stayed with me throughout my life. And the person when I was a young kid, when I would daven right next to me was my grandfather, who, who was a Talmud um, of not a, the son-in-law of the Chafetz Chaim, but the nephew of the Chafetz Chaim. 
my, my grandfather of Moshe Bekritsky was the first graduating Chag Asmicha of Yeshiva's Chafetz Chaim, and his Rebbe was with David Leibovich, and would always uh, tell us stories sure. that what, uh, what, what that Yeshiva was like that he began, uh, you know, so many years ago. So in terms of, you know, the most formative and the most um, ex- inspiring Yom and Rorim experience, I was wondering if you could share, have you ever had a disappointing Yom and Rorim experience or one that turned out drastically differently than you had originally anticipated? No, never. I have never felt anything less than a tremendous... Uh, I wouldn't use the word uplifting because it's too banal. It's too simple a word. I, 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 have, I have been yonik. I have been nourished by Yom and Neroyim every single year my entire life. I mean, to the extent, you know, that you, you're conscious of these things. I always, and I'll tell you why. My father was Be'etzim and Navardika. The formative learning of my father was in many yeshivas in Europe all kinds of yeshivas, but his formative tkufa was in Navardik and Pinsk. The, the, the main uh, yeshiva of Navardik was in Bialystok. And the, 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 next, uh, le- the next main yeshiva, the two centers, was in Pinsk. And Pinsk was a Rosh Yeshiva, Reb Shmuel Weintraub. The stipler was there at the time when my father was there. And uh, that left an incredible Roshan. And my father's sense of Navardik was that there was this incredible consciousness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. My father went through Shiva Maduri Gehenim for 50 years of his life. He was a Yosem. I mean, many of my Talmudim know the whole story. But he was a Yosem from his mother when he was born because his mother died in childbirth. His father died when he was nine years old. So when he was nine, he was a Yosem Me'avu Me'ain. He came to live with a Zayda, who was a massive Talmud Chacham. His name was Rav Gedalia. And uh, it was a glorious Kufa for two years until Rav Gedalia died. So now at the age of 11, he was absolutely nowhere. And his grandmother said to him, listen, I can feed you, I can take care of you, I can house you, but I can't teach you Torah. So she sent him to Ivya. Ivya was where Rav Moshe Shatskis happened to be the Rav at the time. This was the city of Rav Chaim Moshev came from. Little, not, not a big city, but it was a very prominent place. And he was doing very well. So what happened? If you burned down. <laughs> you know, like a muzzle. Anyhow, he valgitzach from one yeshiva to another. He ended up in the Vardik. And that was his formative years. And then from the Vardik, he ended up coming to the Mir, but he didn't end up in Shanghai. Because as a Yosem, he was always concerned what's going to be with his future, who's going to care about him. So he wanted very much to get smicha. Unlike our yeshiva, where that's part of the process, I guess, uh, there's no such thing as getting smicha in the mirror in Europe. Because smicha means you stop learning, and there's no such thing as stopping learning. So, which was aided and abetted by the fact that they couldn't find shidduchim anyhow. So these Alta Bacharim would stay in the yeshiva for years and years and years, and they became massive Talmud Chachamim. But for my father, that was not an option. He felt he was too uh, concerned for his future. So he decided to get smicha, which he did, and he became actually a rav in Vilna, and he got married to my mother. And right after that, guess what? Hitler. 
And he and my mother were in the Vilna ghetto. They survived the Vilna ghetto. 80,000 Jews were in Vilna. Some of them ran away into the forests. The vast majority of them were killed, probably something close to 80,000. And 200 survived the ghetto. Two of those people, of those 200 were my parents. The ghetto was liquidated a number of times. They took them all out into a forest outside of Vilna and they shot them and threw them into the pits that were there. Uh, there were empty pits that used to be used for kerosene or whatever. They just dumped them into the pits and you know, sometimes even alive. And Everybody knows. But uh, so after he came out of, uh, out of uh, Hitler, I was born. I was born in Bialystok, actually. Uh, but uh, the center of activity at that time for the Sheris Apleta in Poland was Lodz. It was the second largest city of Poland. And that's where everybody gravitated because there was either Warsaw or Lodz. There was nothing else. Everything else was destroyed. So the Sheris Apleta came and uh, by he, and my father was doing quite well, actually, under the circumstances. And he was rebuilding a family. His wife, was, my mother was a tremendous, uh, tremendous person, tremendous Sadek, is a brilliant, brilliant woman. And that's how everyone describes her that knew her. I never knew my mother. Because one day when they were walking in Lodge and I was all of seven months old, a trolley hit my mother and she was killed. So you see, any person that was not in the Vardika, I'm telling you, they would never have survived any of this. Never. But my father had this incredible reservoir of connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And because of that, whatever happened later in life, I mean, I, I, the, the memory that I have of my father is not of his learning. It's not of his intelligence. He had all of that. But the memory that, that, that if you ask me, when I think of my father, what is the one and foremost thing that I think about? And that is, is it's, not, it's not even the word emunah, is not the right word. It's the sense of the reality of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu is real in his world. In Hashem's world, but in my father's world. He's real. You can talk to him. You can have tainas to him, if you will. You can, you can uh, cry out to him. You can engage him in, in debate. But more important than anything, there, there is this presence, this constant presence in the reality of our family, the Rebbeinu Shalom. And I think my brothers share exactly the same sentiment. Uh, you know, I, I, I have, therefore, to answer your question, I don't think that there was ever an Elul where I didn't know that it was Elul. And I don't think, and, and, and it wasn't from anywhere else. It was from home. And it isn't because in Elul we do things differently so much. It was because the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu was just talked about a little bit more. And then there was the Yom and Naraim. And I think the Yom and Naraim were, were I, I, don't, I can't possibly, I can't imagine that I had ever a disappointment of any kind. The, if you ever talk about anything like a disappointment, but that's not what you meant. As a Rav, I often feel that I've failed my, uh, my kihila. You know, I, I, that, that doesn't mean that I'm not a, a sufficient balgaiva, I probably am. But, but, but I, I know that, you know, maybe they deserve a better rav. You know, something. maybe they deserve somebody that's more inspiring, or maybe they deserve somebody that's more consistent, 
or maybe they deserve somebody that if they watch them. You know, I, I heard somebody once say that Rebelli Lapian, he once heard him say Kiddush Lavana. And he said that gave him Yerushalayim for the entire year. You know, I, I, you know, so, you know, as a Rav, I guess, you know, you yearn that you should be able to, to reach that kind of madrega of connectedness and of, of, of Kedusha and whatever it is that is that or inspiring that people should say that about you, not because you want them to say that about you, but because, you know, if it's not you, then who's, who are they going to get it from? So like, you know, sometimes I think that they're getting maybe a little bit more of a pedestrian kind of Yom and Narayim because of me. And that bothers me sometimes a lot. You know, Alavai, you know, if I had somebody that I could send them to, I think I would, you know, just, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something, you know, a Rav always has to have a certain measure of confidence. It's like Rosh Hashanah, you know, it's really the same thing. Has to have the confidence because otherwise he'll never be able to inspire anybody. But deep down inside, he also has to realize, at least as the Sifra Hasidus say, you can do something with offer and you can do something with Eifer, you know. You can use them. Nachnuma, that means you're nothing. So, you know, I don't know if anybody reaches that level of a Nachnuma, it's Moshe and Aaron, but, you know, it's, it's easy to say it. But but there, there is that feeling sometimes that uh, you're just inadequate. Let me ask, you know, during these times of Yom Narayim, are there specific Svarim that you turn to for, again, searching for the right word. I know it's not inspiration, chizuk, guidance, or is it the regular lima that you have the rest of the year? Well, I'll tell you, probably for the last, I don't know how many years, certainly since I started giving shir in the yeshiva, but maybe even before, I think that what what, what, what was guiding me is, what do I think the Talmidim need or the shul needs? Now, recently, I went through a whole series. Chavetz Chaim's yard set was uh, just two yeah. days ago. Chavdalit. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I, I gave a series on the Chavetz Chaim and his hashkafa and how it relates to our Kufa right now with the corona and everything. But I, I, I've always, I think that's, I wouldn't say it's Dafka, this Sefer or that Sefer. If there is any Sefer, first of all, I know it mamish by heart. But if there's any Sefer that I would say, you know, for me personally, has a certain uh, quality of uh, nostalgia, I, may, I would even use the word, is it's ala tshuva, the rov. Because first of all, I heard these, since we lived on, on the uh, Upper West Side, long before I ever came to the rov, I used to go to the Maria Shirin of the rov. My father used to take me. My father was a tremendous chassid of the rov. Uh, and of course, the famous yard site shearing, but he also gave once a year a tshuva shear. I was speaking about it recently and I pointed out something very fascinating. You know, if you, if you hear the Rav on tape, as it were, if you hear him, you know, there are, there are a couple of shearing of his that have been preserved. So I heard it live and I was in the place. He used to do it in the 92nd Street Y. Now the 92nd Street Y I, I wouldn't say it's a stira to Yerushalayim and Truva, but they, I mean, they, they took the place. It had nothing to do with the 92nd Street. Why? It wasn't part of their programmatic, you know, uh, presentations. But you go into this large auditorium and you see statues, Beethoven and Shakespeare and Moses. I mean, 
it's not exactly an environment which inspires a person. You know, you, you know, it's not, you know, you're not seeing Rebbe Akiva, Abaye, Rova, you know, Rebbe Akiva Eger, the Shach, the Taz. And, and it, 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 there was a certain dissonance there. And even in the, the whole room, I don't know, and maybe I'm being cynical, but I don't know how many people walked out of there becoming Balichuva. But when you listen to what he's saying, you know what does it to you? It's not so much the message. It's the person, his capacity, his language. It's like Yisrael Asher B'cha Es Pa'ar. There's something majestic, truly majestic. And if you, and, and you say, well, if this is what a Talmud Chacham can achieve, and this is how a Talmud Chacham can present something, that it must be very, very special. And then, of course, when you look at the ideas, you know, themselves, you know, you just look at the ideas. So you realize that, you know, one way or another, he's saying the same thing that everybody is saying, but he's saying it so uniquely and so much better in terms of just the, the, the way it reaches out and captures your imagination and, and, and grabs you and takes hold of you. So that's a safer, but that's because of my personal feelings and relationship with the Rav. I don't know if everybody would feel that way. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. You know, everyone knows that it's a magnum opus. Everyone knows that it's a real tour de force, but I don't know necessarily that it would make that same motion. You know, when I open up the pages and I start reciting the words on my own, I realize to what extent I'm connected to those, to those uh, shiurim. If, if I had my way, uh, all of the rest of the questions uh, for the rest of the evening would all be about the life of your father. But I'm not going to do that right now. But uh, I do have one follow-up question because I'm so curious. They were probably fairly close in age. How did your father come to be a chassid, so to speak, of the Rav? You know, my father was a very interesting person. And, I, and, and honestly... To be very frank with you, I don't know myself some of the uh, stitches that went into that tapestry. I really don't. My father was, uh, was a masterful speaker. The problem is that when he came to America, for some reason or other, he never really intended or succeeded, probably because he didn't intend to, he never mastered English. His English was... Uh, I'm not just talking about the accent. I'm talking about the vocabulary and the nuances. The Ruff, for example, had a terrible accent, but his vocabulary and his nuances were unbelievable. Even his sense of, uh, of slang, you know, of, of, it, it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. The, 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 uh, my father's language was Yiddish. No one's going to believe it, but... To a great extent, my default language, even when I am thinking, is in Yiddish. And uh, I, my opportunities to speak in Yiddish publicly are less and less as time goes on. I remember once it was by mitzvah of one of my grandchildren, and it was in an old age home, and I asked the brother if I could speak in Yiddish, and he said yes, and I was so excited. Then in the middle of the drasha, some fellow there from the old age home he lifts up his hand and he says, I'm Sephardi. Why don't you speak in English so I can understand you? So that was the end of that. But the, the whole uh, language thing really hampered him. It stifled him. But he was a masterful speaker. So I think that was at Sadat Shabbat. There was a certain appreciation that he had for language and for the Rav's Yiddish, for the Rav's 
for the Rav's language. That's number one. Number two, my father was a Talmud Chacham and he was just very impressed. And because of that, he insisted that I go to the Rav. I never went to YU, the college. My father insisted that I should go to the Rav. For some reason or other, my father also insisted, although this was something that was common to a lot of West Side, Sheiris Haplato parents, survivors, maybe because they were just concerned for our economic survival, for, for our ability to thrive in America. So it was very firm and very, very involved. I, I sat and learned the whole day, and then I went to college at night, went to City College. At that time, City College was a very harsh of a school. And the night school had a lot of very serious people. Once in a while, the press professor would fall asleep in the middle of his lecture because it was 11 o'clock at night, and he was, was after a long day. But, uh, you know, that was, but uh, yeah. that time I majored in physics, and uh, I think my father even would have encouraged me to have a career in physics, perhaps. I don't know. I don't think my father ever pushed me dafka to be a rub or a shishiba or a rebbe or anything. Uh, you know, what, what turned me away from physics was that there was one fellow, uh, one, one particular semester, and uh, he was uh, moonlighting. Uh, he was a graduate student in Harvard. He was going for his PhD. He was a genius of a fellow. And he was teaching these courses. And I don't think it's, it's in optics or whatever it is. And, you know, and, and, and yeah, the bottom line is I saw a genius and I saw that he has to work Yom Balayla. And I said to myself, I'm not giving up Tyra for this. And that was the end of my, my career in physics, as it were. But my father had these strange ideas. You know, he wanted to know that I'm going into Torah because that's what I really want. It's not a default. It's not because I can't do anything else. Which today, it's a different kind of mentality altogether. None of my children went to college. Allow me, yeah. to, allow me to ask, looking nowadays at what you see in the Avoda and Talmidim and Arbeis Medrash, what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about the process of tshuva and Yom Narayim? Tell you the truth, I, I, you know, I have an extremely positive feeling. I guess it comes from the from my own Talmudim. I don't really have that much of a shaykhus to the base medrash, uh, which is my own fault, you know. But I don't have that much of a shaykhus to the base medrash, and I don't really know that many Talmudim. I've always found when I gave the sikhas musar, or when I uh, granted that once in a while somebody comes because they suspect I may say something controversial. But uh, I, I don't. I think that I think it resonates with a lot of Talmudim. I think that I, frankly, I think the Talmudim and Yeshiva, by and large, are phenomenal Talmudim. They're 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 seekers. They're interested. They have genuine feelings. It, 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 genuine problems too. But but the problems are genuine because they're thinking. They're worried. They're concerned about their Yiddishkeit, about their avodas Hashem. It's a little bit like your quotation at the very beginning. You know, am I really? A seeker? Am I really a Yerushalmi? But but Talmidim that 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 are like that, they're they're going to have. Uh, I never met a Talmid that I felt that he doesn't understand the Shabbos is Shabbos. You know that the, the what, what Shabbos is really all about. I never felt that my Talmidim need, uh, you know, these booster shots, you know, of the ra ra ra, you know, or these uh, these uh, fabrengin or things like that. I I I don't know. To me, at least, the Talmidim that have a shaykhus to me. Their, their, their hearts were always in the right place. And when it comes to Yom and Narayim, I think that everybody's interested in having uh, a genuine and absolutely 
meaningful and purposeful makom uh, where they can truly feel what we call yamin nairayim. Meaning, is is there a specific maybe preparation or something that you think is overlooked? Maybe not a misconception, but if you were to speak to the Talmidim, which we're doing right now, is there something that you would tell them that maybe is something that's overlooked or, or merits no, I'll tell you something. First of all, when you speak about right now, right now, there's no right now. Right now is such a Yotze Dauphin, such an extraordinarily difficult time in so many ways that it violates all of the rules, so to speak. So on the one hand, people could naturally have much better Hirurei Tshuva, and on the other hand, they, they, they. My, my fear in general for Klau Yisrael is that the corona is gonna go right by them. Everybody's yearning for when things can come back to normal. When can we take off the masks? When can we go back to school? When can we be back in the dorm? When can we be back in the base medrash? But, and, and there is a genuine yearning for all the positive things that that includes. But, but it's like, there's this big bad wolf or this big bully that's harassing us or this big tiger that's threatening us. And, and, and the, the eager is to get rid of him. So there's no sense of, of the tshuva that's supposed to come from a corona to begin with. I, th- I remember at the very beginning when corona hit us, you know, talking about after Purim, every single rav, practically from every persuasion, he was talking about the Rambam at the beginning of Hilchus Tainus. That if something like this happens, you have to think it comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu and it's teaching us a lesson and we should do tshuva. And if Chalila Vachas, we think it's Nikres Mikra, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to be angry at us that we didn't take it seriously and we didn't learn the lesson that we should have. And we didn't seize the opportunity. And he says that that's the pshat of the posuk, Im telchu imi bekeri af ani elech imochem bachamas keri. Me, bachamas also keri. The fact that you are treating this Bederich Mikra that itself makes me angry at you. So I heard this mamish. I was, uh, you know, I was almost taking a poll. Every Rav, every Rosh Yeshiva, everybody was quoting this Ramam. I have yet to hear somebody quote this Ramam the last six weeks. It's like, you know, it hit us, and now we have to worry, worry about the corona and its implications on a pragmatic day-to-day, here-now basis. And, and the Eucharist had to get rid of it, and when will we get rid of it, and how do we cope while we're getting rid of it? And I think that we're missing a tremendous opportunity. I, I, I think in general, modern man does not, and, and unfortunately, a great deal of us, Bichlau, we're very busy with our cell phones and we're very busy being petty. We don't have the, cha- the, the, we don't have the sense of hanging on to great and grand ideas and great and grand values. We don't think big. We don't have, you know, the, 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 the Novi describes the Shunamis that took care of Elisha and then she lost her child, etc. He brought her back to Isha Gedola. The Anoshim Gedola. In the Masechus Tainus, it says that uh, the Gedolim are uh, fasting Sheni Vachamishi Vesheni when there's a crisis of rain, you know, rain didn't fall. Who are the Gedolim? Tamidi Chacham. So we use the word Gedolim, you know, mean great Tamidi Chacham. But every person should strive to be an Odom Gono. Every person has this. this transcendence that he is much more than he thinks on the day-to-day in the, in the superficial and the petty of his, of his you know, humdrum existence. We are extraordinary people. And the corona is supposed to attach itself to that aspect of us. And instead what's happened is it kind of like, you know, wove itself into the tapestry of our 
of our day to day. It's like, uh, you know, it's like, a, you know, can I take an Uber or can I take an Uber? Is it safe or is it not safe? And these kind of questions are times a thousand, you know, uh, which, which also includes, can I go to shul or can I not go to shul? Or should I stay outside an outdoor minion or should I stay home? But I think all of these questions become, you know, like, not if I stay home, how is that going to affect my relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu? I, I think that question is being asked less and less. And I think just the concerns that people have on their day-to-day, their jobs, uh, their schooling, Talmidim that we have are, you know, going back to yeshiva, uh, being home, being home with family day and night. These are all very, very serious issues and uh, they need to be dealt with. But where is that transcendent capacity to say, but what about my neshama? You know, what about my heart? What about my relationship to HaKadosh Baruch the, the Rosh Hashiva grew up in a home, as we just mentioned, and I promised that all the rest of the questions would not be about your father, but it's hard to, uh, it's hard to avoid. The Rosh Hashiva grew up in a home of, of, of an Adam Gadol, the big person who was able to look at personal tragedy in that way. I mean, what are the ingredients? What are, how do you teach somebody to transcend, to be able to attach to transcendent ideas and values? You know, we are surrounded by Talmidi Chachamim and Rosh Yeshiva, um, you know, you grew up in the home of somebody like that, but not everybody, particularly now, has. So how does one cultivate that transcendent attachment to these type of ideas? And that's a fantastic question. I think that when a person, ha- a person has to actually challenge himself, why isn't he where he's supposed to be? That's the first question. There has to be an understanding that you're not where you should be in your thinking, in your evaluation. And I think that the first and foremost thing is that this idea that the world, you see, the way I look at it, let me just go back a little bit. What's the difference between Yiddishkeit and Oriental religions, the Oriental philosophies? They both make nothing of this world. And that's where the difference begins. Mm-hmm. The way they make nothing of this world is the world is a it's a metaphor, it's a it's 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 make believe, it's it's a dream, it's not real. In Yiddishkeit the world is as real as real can be, but it's the prosdor for ultimate reality. The prosdor to the palace. And the palace is the world to come. I I I, I know that it that it's not uh it's not the you know it's, it's not conventional to constantly talk about all the Mabob, as Rana said. You know, I, I, in fact, uh, a lot of people, you know, are concerned that, you know, you have to make this world a place to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's part of Hayom La'asosam. You know, don't worry so much about all the Mabob. Don't talk about all the Mabob so much. But the truth of the matter is, I think if you don't talk about all the Mabob and you don't talk about the valuation of this world, Hayom La'asosam, Mamochel HaKadosh Chorom, and, and, you know, one of the things that I learned when learning the Chabetz Chaim in so many of his farms, some of them that people don't even know exist, is that his constant preoccupation is to tell people that this world, it's not a, it's not a facade. It's not, it's not a, 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 a phantom. It's very real. But its purpose is to reach the other world. And you reach the other world by doing Torah mitzvahs, by relating to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, by davening, by tefillin, by... Kashrus, by Shabbos, by Yontif, and of course, most, mostly by Limur HaTorah. And when a person doesn't have that feeling, I think it's almost impossible 
to break through the incredible wall of Gashmias that this world has to offer. And Enochanami, I think a lot of the Talmidim, especially since they're growing up sometimes in environments where the Gashmias of the world is central and really the, the primary focus, so they have a hard time. So sometimes they reject the whole thing, you know, they just want to go off to some yeshiva somewhere and just live a life, of, you know, you know, which is pure and, and uh, untainted and, you know, unsullied by the world. But if you want to live in the world and you're committed to that and all that that has to offer and to accomplish, so a person has to have that sense that AFLP came, there is a balance and the balance is heavily weighted to the world to come. You know, it, it, and, and, I, and I think that, I, I don't know that in our yeshiva we're, we're, we're very much liach in that. I don't know. I wasn't going to mention it, but every, uh, uh, every uh, Yom Kippur, I find myself reading um, the 23rd parak of Mesiel Sisharim, where he actually describes in fairly vivid detail what the encounter before HaKadosh Baruch Hu was going to be. Uh, Lavo. And, you know, he asked, you know, that, that, that ultimate confrontation, exactly. uh, which is, uh, which is fairly jarring to read, but, uh, but it's a, a, a passage and an idea that I return to every year. I was wondering if I could ask a, a fairly personal question. I'm not sure what the answer is. I average about one apology, one actual handwritten or phone call, a specific apology to a specific person that I've wronged. I'm not talking about what, I, what, what we think about in Tfilazaka or just a quick text message. Wonder if the Rosh Hashiva ever sent a formal pre-Yom Kippur apology to somebody and what were the circumstances? Yeah, I'll tell you a very cute story. Before I tell you that story, the one person that I've never, ever broken through with is my own Rebetzin. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very serious about these things. You know, I, I take the halacha very seriously and I... Definitely have wronged her in some way or another. You know, I'm not Ripsamizamanar about that by the we should all live and be well, that by the, the Levaya, you know, he says there's a minute to ask Mahila, but I really don't know what there is to ask Mahila about. I, I don't ha- I don't remember any time that I ever wronged her. You know, I, I don't think that I could say that. But every time every Yom Kippur or whatever it is, I go over to her and you know, she she just starts to laugh, you know. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Anyhow, but but the, uh, and I can never tell if she's laughing because it's funny or she's laughing because it's absurd, you know. <laughs> I don't know, I'm not sure. But anyhow, whatever it is, I mean absurd because there's so many instances like what she could be, Michael, <laughs> yeah, whatever. But no, but all joking aside, the, the, uh, there was one episode, I had very interesting, you know, we in our shul, means I in our shul, uh, am very matbid mm-hmm. about talking. To such an extent that many, many years ago in the Flatbush, about 36 years now, so going way, way back, more than 30 years ago, many more, right at the beginning, we laid down the law, there's no such thing as talking in the shore, and we were very successful. And this goes back uh, 15 years or so, 20 years. There's a bar mitzvah. Now, by mitzvah, you have krovim, krovim come, they don't know from this, you know, they're coming from their shore, they're coming from their they're matzav. And apparently in their shul, there's a lot of socialization and uh, they feel free to talk. So there was this person and his son. This person must be maybe around 70 years old. And his son, he was, must have been in his 30s. 
and they're talking nonstop, I would say, except during Shema and Shema And they happened to be a table right in front of me. It was a very, the, the, the first shul, before we built the shul, was a small place. And it was Mamish Kaman in my face. And I shushed at them and I made with my hands and my, you know, like with my eyes and I rolled my eyes and I grabbed it. I said, go on, go home. Nothing helped. Finally, I blew up at them. I don't remember at what point, by Kriya Satoira, I, I don't know, I blew up at them and I let them have it. And as always, when you come from a holy place, it's fine. But when you come from a place of Kas, which was definitely the case, I just got angry. And you know, you get angry because you have righteous indignation. But a lot of righteous indignation is that you're not listened to. It's a gaiva thing. What do you mean? I'm the rub of the shul and I'm setting the tone and you're doing this in my face? So it's kas. And kas is like, that's a very bad thing, kas. I almost never get angry, but I got angry. I got good and angry. And I realized that it was kas. So at that time, the bar mitzvah itself was in the shul, but we had no hall. So across the street, there was a hall, so everybody went to the hall for the kiddush. I said to myself, you know, I was mavaza this person, I have to ask mechila b'fnei So I climbed the steps to the kiddush. I was going to the kiddush anyhow. But when he's sitting there with his family around, surrounded and, you know, very nice, and they'd already made kiddush and they were uh, eating the, 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 the herring or whatever it was, I went over and I said, I was mavazi in public, I'm asking you mechila in public, it was very wrong with me, I, I got into a, an anger into a, a you know a bout of anger of kas and he says to me I'm not meichel you I'm not meichel you if you call me erev yom kippur maybe I'll be meichel you this was like Pesach time you know it was a long time to yom kippur anyway I got home Matzai Shabbos I sat down uh, my 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 diary is the computer <laughs> anyhow so I I I turned to the calendar whatever you know, uh, program I use, and I figured out when Yom Kippur is. Erev Yom Kippur, I wrote this name down, I looked up his phone number, I wrote his phone number down, and it's amazing how time flies. All of a sudden, it's Erev Yom Kippur, and I see it on my calendar, and I call him up. I say, hello, and he says, yes, who is this? I say, it's Rabbi Khan. Rabbi Khan, what do you want? (laughs) So far, we're doing great. (laughs) From that tone of voice. I said, well, you told me to call you. I, what? I said, remember that time? So you said, you're not Michael me, but if you call me Erev Yom Kippur, maybe you'll be Michael me. You heard the ice melting over the phone. You actually heard the heart pumping. The warm heart pumping. Rabbi Khan, I didn't mean that you should call me. You called me? I can't get over that you called me. Of course I'm Moichu you. I forgot about it a long time. You call, he, he repeated it probably 14 times. And of course, as things would have it, actually I was davening for him. That was part of the irony. He was a very sick person and he was nifter not long afterwards. And I went to be Menachem Oval, the family. And when I went into the rabbits and the daughter, she didn't know who I was, but the daughter introduced me. She says, you're Rabbi Khan. My husband loved you. <laughs> Isn't that a great story? That's a tremendous story. So that's the one uh, episode. I ask my, my Kehillah Mechilo constantly, not just Erev, Erev uh, Yom Kippur. 
you know, I try my best uh, to be mechazik be'olam. I have a tremendous relationship with all of them. But FOP came. Either you didn't do enough or you did too much. Uh, sometimes you say something. You know what's interesting? You can hurt somebody without even realizing it. And then you have to ask yourself, did, did, a lot of times my Rebetzin tells me, don't talk about this because there's a girl that hasn't, you know, doesn't have shaduchim, but don't talk about this because there's a, somebody who doesn't have any children. And I say to her, then, you know, you're basically taking everything out, you know, because, so, but you don't know. You really don't know. You don't know when you're hurting somebody. Sometimes it's so inadvertent and so unintended, but it, but it happens. And even for that, you have to ask Mechila. And then, of course, there's a the big question that nobody has an answer to. What if you have to ask Mechila of somebody and inform him of what you did, and that's going to create World War III? So, famous Machlobos, but that's, that's Torah. But when it comes to real life, it's, uh, my personal feeling is you just can't do it. It's just not Kedai. Rav Vazar has a very beautiful tshuva about that. He says that's the whole point of asking Mechila before Yom Kippur, because since everybody's doing it, so no yeah. one's going to get the uh, the drop on you to realize that they're asking because they, they heard That's you very personally. true, but but there's, there's, it's an alia v'kaitzba. There's a negative to it also. I know a lot of times in, in schools, especially high school kids, you know, that age, you me, you me, you me, you know, that was that way. That's not worth two cents. As, you know, there's no contrition there. You know, I once wrote a very big chibur on Mechila, Bakoshis Mechila, about Yosef and his brothers. And the, it's, 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 I don't know, 150 pages. Dvarim Shabalev? No, no. It's uh, on, on Bakoshis Mechila. That's, that's I wrote what, on that too. Yeah, so we should exchange uh, notes. Anyhow, the, 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 it's crystal clear that the, the main reason why you have to confront the person is because there has to be that hachna in your heart. You know, when you go around saying, it's almost like a game, you know. It's like taking a, a rock for a pillow on Tisha B'Av, you know. <laughs> it's a game, you know. So uh, that's, uh, but, but Yom Narayim is a phenomenal opportunity. It's a phenomenal, I think everything really starts with one's own intentions and desires. All the ideas of inspiration and, you know, you know, there are a lot of people that want very much to go to Uman. You know, I think, and, and I'm not saying this in any negative way, but I think a person has to find the Uman that's in his heart, in his own heart. You have to find the Uman that's in front of you, you know, in your living room. That, that, that's, I think, a great deal of the problem, that, that there's a very great lack of religious imagination, of, of the sense of, Ma Hashem requires a sense of Hashem. Uh, you know, the the, the, the and going back to what I said before, you have to know Prozda, Traklin, the relative value of things. You know, Tzedakah. Tshuva Tzvilat Tzedakah Mavir in Israel Akzeru. Tzedakah is a world. It's an entire world. Rabbi Yeruchim, they say, once tied himself down in a bed. And when somebody asked him, what are you doing? He says, I need to feel the sick person's inability to turn over. I mean, it's, so that's what I'm talking about. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a concept of empathy, but in a very Jewish sort of way. You know, there, there's, there's, you know, that's a very, very hard thing to do. And, and, and to the point where it might even break you. So you have to strike that balance. But, you know, I, I've, I've, I've often found that 
people give tzedakah maybe, but the compassion aspect of it is not missing because he's not from enough. It's because he doesn't have enough sensitivity. He's missing nerve cells. We're, we're, uh, I don't know, we're jaded or we're we're too smart for our own good or we've, we've seen too much or we're exposed to so many, you know, influences and things are thrown at us day and night, television, internet, you know, cell phones, uh, the, the world is going at such a rapid pace in so many directions, whatever it is, I don't know. I think when they were in the shtetl and everything was the same and it was the same tyrant, the same pogrom, you know, it's the same, the same misery. I don't know, there's just this feeling that, you know, you can reach out to the Rebbe Shalom and he's very real. And here I think by us, it's, it's not so partial. I don't, I, don't, I don't think we feel that realness. Religious imagination. We, we, we probably have time for only one more question, and even that may have to be a bit succinct, and I'll... Uh, is there a, an idea? I know it's not the question know. that has to be succinct. It's the answer that has to be succinct. <laughs> You're doing great. I, uh, th- there are a few psukim and a few ideas that animate um, for me that I come back to Yomim Narayim. It's usually not such a profound lumdish or deep machshav idea. They're usually psukim I return to. Chadesh Yameinu Kikedem, Karachim Mavalbanim. I'm wondering for the Rosh Hashiva, is there one idea, one one pasuk, one thought that you return to every year, Yom Narayim time? I tell you, it's not Yom Narayim time, it's every single day. And that is, Vishuv Yom Echad Lifnei Nisascha. I think that young people have a great deal of difficulty with something like that because if you ask them, are you going to live forever? They will say, well, that's ridiculous. Everybody knows that everybody dies. And they live, everybody lives as if they'll live forever. There's no, speak about religious imagination, there's no acute sense of their finality until you reach a certain age. At my age, I've discovered that I can almost become neurotic about a minute that I didn't use properly. Because I have this very acute feeling that that minute will never return. Now that was true when I was five years old, that that minute will never return. But you can't feel that way at the age of five or 15 or 25 or maybe even 45 sometimes. But when you reach 75, you can feel that. You do feel it. And the Vishuv Yamechad of you know, the irony is that the Chiyav of Tshuva Gemura is when you have your full strength and all your apparatus is working and your Cheshik for Averis is there. When you're old, you just don't have that Cheshik anymore. And sometimes you don't have the, the, the apparatus for it. That's true. So just at the time when you're really capable of doing a Tshuva Gemura on a regular basis, it's not really a Tshuva Gemura because... You don't have the misyonis of being young. But I, 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 that's something that I've, that, that is first and foremost. It, remi- it reminds me of the great story of Reb Chaim looking out at the Baltic Sea, saying that, what are you thinking about? And he said, I'm thinking about the day of death. And uh, it's a, a sobering thought, but a powerful one. And I want to thank the Rosh Hashiva uh, for his time, for opening up his experiential diary of, th- of sorts and sharing ideas to... Uh, to inspire, to be mechazek, and to hopefully take with us through Yom and Narayim into Ishana Ubirchal Seha. Thank you so much.
uh, for speaking of pleasure. And everyone should have a ksivach simatayvah, that all of you should be matzliach in the best kinds of hatzlacha and the gashmias and the ruchmias and steig and grow and become anoshim gedolim. Become anoshim gedolim. Amen. It's all a matter of how you look at it. You just have to want to be it. And you are. And most of the Talmidim are well on their way towards it. They just need to tighten the screws a little bit and they're great. That's Locha Rabba. And I want to thank Rabbi Bacon and whoever else was involved in making this happen. I don't know about anybody else, but I enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much. Okay. Good night. You too. Be well.